This is episode two of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative four, miniature signs. Lake Austin Tier was quite large, as the sidewalk which connected it to the Dahlia Village melded into the lakeside. The sidewalk covered the whole lake's perimeter, except for Waterfall Austin Tier, which spilled downward. The waterfall was wide yet thin as it continued to drip into a very small pond down below Lake Austin Tier and onto Blade Desert. Wow, this lake is gorgeous, I told Rodney, as the two of us stood still. The distant Dahlia Village looked no more than a smudge of constructed civilization, while from here one could see the raised thin strip of the ocean. Past that, but shielded currently by water, was Cultura City. It was important to note that the ocean was not flat. It twisted like a ribbon or a helix connected to the desert to the far shore. Beneath the ocean was the large jungle, which from up here looked like a painting. So do you guys come up here? I asked. This lake is connected to your town after all. No, Rodney answered. Nobody comes to Lake Austin here too much, honestly. I think it's because people are too scared of Blade Desert below the lake. Why are people so scared about Blade Desert, I asked, while using my left hand to examine the lake's water. It was a freshwater lake, decently warm, which was a surprise considering there didn't seem to be any source of heat to power this lake. Savages live in Blade Desert, Rodney explained. I don't know too much about it. The adults don't tell the kids anything. Dahlia Village likes to act like the world is all within the village. There were a couple incidents, you know, kids would fall down the lost sincere waterfall and never be seen again. Since then, there's not even any supervised trips or visits for fear of falling into Blade Desert. There was a nearby sign which simply read, Lake Ossentier, Waterfall Ossentier, Three Wise Monkeys Rock. What do you know about Three Wise Monkeys Rock? I questioned Rodney. For someone who had lived here for years, Rodney didn't know jack shit. Perhaps I was being too aggressive, considering the kid was 11, even though he had lived for 50 years. It's a rock in the middle of the lake. Rodney pointed out deep into the lake, in which I did see a small rock shaped like a gumdrop. Apparently there's a cave in there with statues of three wise monkeys. I don't know if that's true, but that's where the name comes from. I want to see it, I muttered. Where's the boat to cross the lake? A boat? Rodney asked. What's a boat? You seriously don't know what a boat is? I was a bit flabbergasted, considering a boat was such a basic transportive equipment, but being shielded in Dahlia Village no doubt had fostered ignorance. No, what is it? It's like... A thing you use to cross a lake and helps you travel over the water. Why would you need a boat? Rodney questioned in my chuckle. Are you asking why you need something to cross water? Rodney didn't answer with words, but merely wheeled off the sidewalk and into the lake. On Earth, one would merely have sank into the water, but here, Rodney's wheelchair sat on top of the water. Are you shitting me? I whispered. Duh, you didn't think to guess that you could support yourself on the water? Rodney asked. If you could support yourself in air, you could do it on the water. Shit, I didn't think about that. Rodney and I crossed Lake Austin Tier with ease, until after a while, small screeches could be heard from deep within the water. What the hell is that? I questioned Rodney, who shrugged in uncertainty. I opened up my bag and pulled out my gun. Using the same technique I had tried in Neon Forest, I was able to load the gun with bullets. I didn't know what kind of bullets these were, but... They had worked upon the aquamarine creature back in the neon forest, so I assumed they'd be useful here. The moaning sounds continued until a large serpent rose out of Lake Austin Tier. It looked like some kind of Asian dragon, although its coloration was bleached white. 
Its eyes were the same color of the lake as if existing within Lake Ausentir had turned its vision into the biome. The creature opened its mouth to reveal rows of sharpened yellow teeth, no doubt ready to make us its meal. Are you sure the trips didn't stop because of this thing? I asked, looking at Rodney, who was scared shitless. We were closer to Three Wise Monkeys Rock than the shoreline, so I made the decision quickly. Run to the rock! With the force of a hurricane, the white monster slammed down into the water. Thankfully, Rodney had already began wheeling forwards while I had backed up instinctively. The serpent vanished under the water again, but I knew the bastard would be back. I looked around the waters to try and curb him, but the serpent got the advantage appearing behind me. I shot a couple bullets which hit the monster, but did not slow the monster down. The creature once again dipped into Lake Austin too. Rodney was doing well for himself, but I didn't want to be too far from him. I began running towards Three Wise Monkeys Rock. The creature reappeared, its jaws open. I managed to duck and roll last second as the jaws snapped shut with the sound of a cracked whip. The rock, which originally had looked like a gumdrop in the distance, now was looking more like a small mountain. Rodney was almost at the shore where, hopefully, we'd be protected. Once again, the beast rose for its potential dinner, but this time I was prepared. My gun fired six bullets, each of which hit the beast's upper body. The beast roared and fell over like a tarnished building. Rodney was waiting for me on the rock when I finally got to land. Both of us caught our breath while our adrenaline normalized before vanishing. Fuck was that? I asked, looking at Rodney with bright eyes. The f fuck was that thing? I don't know, Rodney cried, looking upset that he had failed to note the beast. I didn't know a water dragon existed in the lake. Well, it does, I sighed. We defeated it, I think. I turned and looked around. The rock was pretty mighty and now exposed a cavern within it. It seemed as though Rodney's notes were coming true. Do you know anything about this cave? I asked, standing on the outside of the large rock. It stood as though independent of the water around it. I could see a little bit within the cavern, although I was curious at what lay within it. No, Rodney replied, most likely watching me for my next movement. Only what I already told you. Let's go inside, I motioned, walking as though pulled by a siren. Rodney wheeled after me, curious as the cave swallowed us like flies in a gaping jaw. The cavern twisted, although purposely trying to hide its innards, but after a minute of slowly moving forward, we reached a large room. There were lamps on the walls, lit forever with the kind of continual light which mimicked energy. They pulsated together, fading in and out like the breaths of some kind of timid animal. In the far back perimeter of the room were three large monkeys. Stone monkeys. The carvings were breathtaking, actual art, which in real life would no doubt be in a museum somewhere. But I had to remember that none of this was tangible. Even though it truly felt like my feet were on cavern floor and my hands were scuffed with stone residue from traveling the tunnel, the three wise monkeys were Japanese macaques. The first wise monkey covered his ears as if shielding his auditory senses from a loud rock concert. The middle covered his mouth, his body pressed inwards as though to hide away from the conversation. The third monkey had a sneer upon his lips while his hands covered his vision. There were many different interpretations of the monkeys. We of Western culture would most likely find it to be a lack of responsibility, blind ignorance, blind eye trapped within a bubble. But in the Buddhist and original manuscripts, the wise monkeys represented goodness to separate one's humanity from evil thoughts. In viewing the monkeys in front of me, I assumed they represented the latter. They were protectors of good and disregarders of evil. What does this mean? Rodney asked. Monkeys mean something, I explained, eyeing them with intense scrutiny. It was as though I was handed a puzzle and I was trying desperately to solve it. But I don't really know what. 
You don't even have an idea? Of course not, I chuckled. I don't know Clark King from Adam. Well, what's your best guess behind this? This cave represents a hiding space, a safe space for Clark King's youth. Uh, so what does my town represent? The safety, fun, ignorance of youth? I shrugged. It's a basic guess, but that's all I really know. I'm sure there's so much shit that I'm missing or that doesn't make sense. Like for some reason, I wonder if you're significant to the life of Clark King. Were you a childhood friend or maybe a classmate in school? I'm still trying to understand this whole thing. Rodney was clearly distressed, and I couldn't blame him. I was slowly destroying his world and normality. Everything for Rodney had seemed real and within the deviation of possibility, but my theories weren't part of the bell curve of normality. Instead, they ran on a parallel bell, which formed some kind of agape jaw that both Rodney and I had for different reasons. His life was a lie, while I was experiencing an unparalleled world. It's okay, buddy. So am I. Silence went between us like the silence a SWAT team experienced when they were being driven out to a harrowing situation. I continued to gaze upon the monkeys as if they were about to begin dancing as a part of a musical to explain their metaphorical significance in this world. But I continued studying the forms in front of me, and I finally noticed something that seemed important. There, hidden away within the space of the middle monkey's right arm, was a small potted plant of lavender. An infant plant, mostly green, but still with the beginnings of purple petals on the cusp of childhood. It stood there, almost as both a sign and as a mockery for me and me alone. Its placement suggested that his subconsciousness knew about me. Or maybe even that Clark King knew I was investigating his subconscious. Did he purposely plant this here for me, or did his mind? Maybe Clark King didn't know that the lavender plant played such an important role to him, or maybe he did. Ready? I asked Rodney, who nodded. He began to wheel out of the cavern while I followed at a small degree behind. The lavender I was looking for would not be a lavender plant. That I knew very much. I did not mention the plant to Rodney, considering the plant was ordinary and nothing more than a clue. I was expecting to see some lavender, but I wondered the significance of the small plant tucked away behind the middle monkey. It was as though the monkeys protected the lavender, or that the lavender was a symbol for good. An ordinary man would have missed its small presence among the signs of ignoring evil, but for me, I sensed that lavender before turning around and walking out of the cavern and back to the lake. Chapter Negative 5 Who is the Savage? Rodney and I left Three Wise Monkeys Rock and began walking out to Lake Austin Tier. So there's only one place to go, I shrugged. Blade Desert. Oh shit! Rodney whispered. If you don't want to go, you don't have to go. You can just go back to Dahlia Village. No, no, I'm going to come. Rodney shook his head. I, I just, I, I'll get over it. We walked towards Waterfall Austin Tier, my mind still racking the clues together. If the forest was about Clark's birth, then the village had to be about family or infantry. Was the lake a symbol for the transition to childhood? How come this metaphor seemed basic and in need of something more? The subconscious couldn't be as literal as I thought it was. Before I could overanalyze myself into oblivion, the voice which had first come to me in Neon Forest came back. The voice's origins appeared to be coming from the heavens as if God's voice to the people. It was still the aged, crisp male voice, not having changed at all since I had first heard its harrowing comments. Why it had not spoke to me in Dahlia Village was a mystery to me. 
My family owned a small lakeside cabin, the only black family in the whole lake to do so. The other families were nuclear and white. Shining happy faces in the post-civil rights era where tension still existed, but in a different mannerism. Granted, I was lucky, considering what we lived in Virginia. Had we been any more Southern, we would have been roasted alive for being a successful black family. A father who worked for a top government agency and a mother who worked in a high position within higher education. We were happy, especially on our vacation time. The lake was a great spot. Most individuals chose to swim and gather in the closest part, but even at a young age, I'd run off to the other side of the lake where I'd find my happy zone alone within the small caverns in the mountain which surrounded the north of the lake. My parents would be fine with me running off. Granted, it was a different time, an arrow than now. Now parents worry about their kids, even with kids at their side, but I was six, seven, eight, running through the caverns. Granted, we never really went back to the lake after the summer I was nine. The voice trailed off as we got closer to the waterfall. I looked over at Rodney and realized he had not heard the voice. I tried to shake off the voice's story, but for some reason, the stories continued to lay in the underbelly of my consciousness. How funny. Clark King's subconscious affecting my consciousness. Rodney and I arrived inches away from the flight of the waterfall. Down below, I could see the pond which collected the waterfall's remnants. The pond looked way too thin and small to collect all of the waterfall's might, but this paradox was not the first I had come across in this world. How do we walk down the waterfall? I questioned. We just walk it, Rodney explained before beginning to roll forward. Suddenly, he turned over began walking on the surface of the waterfall. I was confused, but joined. It felt like I was taking a massive stare as my body righted itself from the 90-degree switch-up. Shit, that wasn't too bad, I chuckled, standing on waterfall off-center like I own the world. I wonder... There was a sudden roar as the white serpentine creature appeared right behind us. I immediately reached for my gun, but I was too late. The beast snapped its jaws forward and I grabbed onto Rodney. I pushed Rodney in his chair down the waterfall while the serpentine slipped into Waterfall Austin Terre, using the thin strip of water to guide itself towards us. The beast opened its jaws wider than before. Rodney screamed and I did the only thing I could think of. I jumped off the waterfall with Rodney still in his chair. The monster was shaken by our choice to risk falling and seemed to stop moving within the waterfall Austin here. Rodney and I free flew for what seemed to be forever. I tried aiming our bodies to fall into the pond below, but it appeared that we were going to end up in the sand. I closed my eyes and felt my body slam into blade desert like a sack of potatoes which had been tossed off the top of an apartment building. The monster was no longer chasing us. I could tell that, but I couldn't tell anything else as my body soaked up the heat of the desert and my brain settled into the off position. I awoke soon after feeling stiff and somewhat groggy. Rodney was still unconscious, his chair and body separated yet close by. I sat up slowly, my mind reeling to remember what had happened. I recalled the appearance of the monster and then falling without a cord for anything through the sky. I sat up a little, but was in no position to stand up. I could see sand all around me, for everywhere I looked were piles of sand which created dunes. I tried finding refuge, but nothing seemed available. 
In the near distance, I could see the helix of the ocean and wondered if I could get us there quickly. I didn't know what savages would be around. With breath finally leaking into my body, I did manage to finally stand. As I did, I looked over at the small pond which the waterfall poured into. The pond was empty of life and rather still as the waterfall melted quietly and perfectly into it. Now that I was closer to the waterfall, I couldn't tell where the waterfall originated from or emptied. Instead, it seemed to almost be a continuation of a lake and less of a waterfall. By the edge of the pond was a little wooden sign, although there was a lot on this sign. Sippin' Hole. Connection to Lake Ausentir. The savages can't read, and they don't know that we know they hate water. I was confused by what the sign implied in the second part of the message, but I quickly remembered the advice regarding the savages of Blake Desert. The second sign, which was a little away from the pond but close to the first sign, was just as interesting. Blade Desert, home to the savages and their living spaces. Be wary crossing this land. Safe passage is rarely guaranteed, but you should be fine if crossing to the Sipping Hole from Fesferet Sea. They hate getting anywhere near to the water, although they are aware that people inhabit this part of the desert. I was able to deduct that the large ocean to the west of where I was at, or seemingly west, was called Phosphorite Sea. The ocean from here looked amazing. It formed a wall which seemed to separate the cultured individuals of Cultura City and the savages of Blake Desert. I was intrigued by the gravity-defying geography, but I hadn't had too much time to be alone with my thoughts as the voice which had been guiding my self-journey tour rang out in my head. My early years of school were savagery at least in a reflective glare. During the time I was a child, I did not care too much about what was happening around me, but now, as an adult, I can see what my early education and existence was, a zoo. Animals as children who were being raised to contain some kind of discipline, teachers herding the sheep in an effort to raise them for slaughter. We bought the process and tried our best to go along with it, but... Granted, education was different in those days, but kids are always the same. Small monsters we have to turn into humans. I moved back towards Rodney while reflecting on that statement from Clark King, and I stirred Rodney awake. What the fuck? Rodney whispered. That shit was intense. Right, I added, but we're safe. No, we're not, Rodney muttered. We won't be safe until we get out of here. The Fesper at sea is right over there. I pointed to the glass-like surface of the nearby ocean. It's not a far walk, but I paused. My comment fading out while the nearby sound of cars began fading in. I was confused where the sounds were coming from, but the collective roars of engines were making their way towards the sipping hole. No, Rodney moaned as I tried to get him off the ground. Rodney wasn't even trying to help lift himself into his own chair. What? I asked. Is that the savages? They're coming. What do we do? I questioned. Can we make it to the sea? No, they're coming, Sydney. They're coming. Indeed, as if called by Rodney himself, a visual arrived with the impending audio. The engines belonged to RVs and Jeeps, all stripped bare of details and left as vehicle skeletons. It was a surprise that these machines could even move. On top of the RVs were men and women, all with bronze skin tanned from the desert and sparkling eyes the color of gold and blood. They all hooted with excitement, all dressed simply with black leather, which hid only small amounts of dignity. I could see bare nipples, dick, ass, and vagina all in the open with no care in the world for who saw them. I quickly hid my bag, throwing it under my shirt. I didn't want them to take the three small tools I had to leave this world. What the hell is this? 
I asked out loud, knowing the answer but still confused. I placed Rodney in his wheelchair, although Rodney already looked gone as if trying to make himself invisible. Rodney did not seem to be a fan of confrontation, but clearly I would have to be the one to handle this. The RVs and jeeps circled Rodney and I in a small pocket of sand. The nearby sipping hole was too far to reach, although I did remember that these savages hated open water. Who are you? The one man asked. His muscular definition and eyesight were both extreme, while the side of his nutsack kept popping out of a leather thong he wore. I took note of the limited language the savages seemed to know. We are just walking to the fest for at sea. I explained, but was immediately cut off by a golden-eyed girl who acted like a cat. This our land! Her voice was gritty and almost toxic. You no belong! We're about to leave. No, no leave! Side Nut chuckled, clearly amused with something I wasn't finding funny. You come with us! Why would we come with you? I asked, trying to sound strong but not too rude to the savages. But they didn't seem to get it either way. Tie up! Golden Eye screamed, picking up a net from her RV and throwing it towards Rodney and I. I tried stepping out of the way, but many nets were tossed. Men and women alike and all savages immediately came towards Rodney and me. Rodney already seemed defeated while I tried fighting the nets. Stop this! Sidenut muttered, standing above me before lowering himself to punch me in the face. Immediately, I passed out. I awoke, finding myself on one of the RVs and speeding through Blade Desert. The sand kicked up and formed a large storm behind us as the two ogres of men continued driving forward. Rodney lay next to me, still unconscious from our capture. The other RVs continued with us, spreading out in an aviary V-like fashion. The dust built up together like a mohawk of hair as we moved forward into the Blade Desert. The shining Phosphorite Sea looked now like a thin veil rather than an impressive ocean. The voice came back again, and I listened to another personal antidote. The finale of my early education. The socialization of being a child was merely beginning at this finale, but the socialization would be complete later on. How could something be the end, the beginning, the middle, and the end itself? In the classroom, we were good angels, or at least pretending to be good angels, but... Granted, competition is inherent in school, especially a school in the 1970s where brown nosers, idiots, cheerleaders, and football players fought with the academic, the geeks, the losers, the scum. Life was a coliseum, as the brink of each thought catapulted themselves into entertainment for the general order. We didn't mind occasionally being tossed in the ring because the rest of the time was spent watching the battles play out. There was no good versus bad. We were all bad creatures. We were all... Just kids. The assumed voice of Clark King faded out as my eyesight continued gazing at the stadium in front of me. It was the only object built in the desert, built of hardened white-brown stone. It was large, perhaps three or four stories. On the outside of the building was the milling of stadium attendees and tons of RVs, jeeps, and other mangled transportation equipment. Shouts, screams, pleasurable moans echoed into the air as our caravan continued closer. What the fuck is this? I asked, my eyes open with fear. My body was not inherently scared, although I was not happy with being tied up and being led to the stadium. Welcome to the tribe stadium, bitch! The man screamed, raising his fist and slamming it down onto my head again, which caused me to...
Chapter negative six. Glory, gore, and guts. I awoke in a small cage, which I assumed was in Tribe Stadium. Both the words for this location seemed advanced for the savages, although I suppose their vocabulary had a few exceptions. The cage I was in was interesting, for it had dual doors. The first door connected to some kind of hallway which ran around the basin of the stadium. The second door led out to the arena. I turned to find a match already occurring on the field. Two leather-bound females were clawing and punching at one another in a mission to overtake the other. Blood, guts, and fleshy pieces spilled out of their bodies and into the sand as the audience shrieked in delight. From my entrapment, I could see the spillage of the arena body as plenty of savages filled the stone seating. None of them were sitting on the stone but stood with rage and excitement as they supported one of the two bitches who were currently fighting it out. Indeed, leather was the fashion of choice and it seemed like a million cows had been sacrificed for the savages' ensembles. The heat pouted into the stadium from the natural desert and the collection of bodies. I looked at the other cages to find half of them empty. There seemed to be some of the savages locked up, perhaps for committing a crime. Some of the locked up savages looked upset, their bodies hunched over and sadness reeking. Other savages looked excited for the bloodthirst. I looked to find people in my predicament, dressed up in normal clothes and shaking. I wondered if the savages patrolled the area between Fesferet Sea and the Sipping Pool, considering that that seemed to be the only way to get from Dahlia Village to Kultura City. But then again, who was going out of their way to Dahlia Village? I was confused, but I didn't have too much time to think about it before Rodney's voice called out from a few cages away. Sydney! Rodney screamed, his voice in absolute pain as he was dragged away, his legs trailing on the floor of the stadium. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know what I could do. I was in a cage with a view of the stadium floor. Rodney was being dragged away from me. Rodney! Rodney! I cried out, as if my words had power even though they carried no weight. One of the guards who watched me chuckled. You won't cry long. You next. The guard's broken and basic language was alluring and mysterious. Next, I questioned. What does that mean? You, out there, fight to death. The guard's broken English matched the broken teeth within his jaw and the large scar on his neck. Fight. You. Do. The guard said nothing else and I didn't ask for clarification, but now... I walked to the far end of my cage which faced the stadium. The fight between the two girls had finished and the crowd was raging. I couldn't tell whether the fight had truly gone to death, although the losing girl's body had been dragged out of the stadium through doors and not cages. Currently Rodney had been thrown out of his cage and placed onto the field. I could see the fear and uncertainty which was coming from Rodney. Oh no, I whispered, looking to see Rodney in the field. They had granted him his wheelchair, as if that was going to help him in a battle to the death against a large savage. The man looked similar to Sidenut, although upon zooming in I could tell that it was Sidenut. Perhaps because Sidenut had captured us, he would be the one who received the glory of battle. There was no way that Rodney would win against the large beast that was Sidenut. This entire battle seemed out of control and was generally unfair. The true savagery was coming to light. These beasts wanted nothing more than entertainment, no matter if that entertainment was an 11-year-old handicapped boy. Ha! Huh? Ready for another battle? A voice cried out, and I looked up to the stands. A singular girl stood wearing leather cups which holstered her breast to maximum sex. She was well-spoken among the mass of them all. Her hair was ponytailed into small, long ponytails, which probably gathered on 12 to 14 of them. The MC of the day also wore leather undies and boots, which went almost to her knee and were stitched in. 
It's your battle girl, MC Charlene! Charlene was quite the hype man as the crowd went along with her energy as she stood up and moved to a small podium that was melded into the audience. Ready for the next battle? Of course the audience was ready for the next battle. Okay, here we go! On the count of three! The whole crowd joined Charlene for the next part. Three, two, one, go! Immediately, Sidenet stepped forward, his meaty legs making quick strides over to Rodney. Rodney looked like a deer in headlights before he decided to begin wheeling away from Sidenet. The crowd laughed immensely, as for a long period of time, Sidenet ran after Rodney, who did circles and figure eights around the sand floor of the stadium. For a minute, it seemed like Rodney had some slim chance of survival, but finally, Sidenet seemed to evolve into smarter decisions and cut off Rodney and grabbed the wheelchair and Rodney who was in it and flung them across the arena. The crowd went nuts at that part of the show as the limp, helpless Rodney finally was overcome by Sidenut, who moved forward. Sidenut flipped into the air and slammed his feet down onto Rodney's chest. Rodney screamed as the crunch of bones and the squish of flesh and organs seemed to echo around the arena. The crowd's wildness escalated while Charlene continued her screams. The kid is on the floor! Charlene cooed. Can he take the next attack? Charlene was the most popular girl in grade school. She was a manipulative and smart bitch. Nobody crossed her, and never did she get to play in the arena herself. The voice of Clark King had been quick this time, as I eyed Charlene again. This was only the second time that Clark King had explained the significance of an individual. It made me very certain that there was significance in everyone I had come across in the subconscious land, but... I didn't have time to think much as Sidenut punched Rodney twice in the face. By this time, Rodney was unconscious and I believed Rodney to be dead as well. The crowd cheered as Sidenut stood up, roaring and cheering for his victory. What a beautiful win for Henry! Charlene shouted to the crowd. Another victory for one of our stadium favorites! Two of the savages collected Rodney's corpse and took it through the doors. I didn't know what to say and I was actually surprised to be feeling something. Normally, I wouldn't contain emotions, but I was feeling something. I knew what I was feeling was not from experience, but from witnessing sadness in the world around me. I didn't like this emotion. I prefer the numb attitude to the world around me. Rodney, a kid I had known for a split hair of time, was dead because of my need to find Clark King and Lavender. I couldn't fully believe I had used Rodney, but I didn't feel like I had protected him either. There would be no time given to mourn as I gracefully exited my open cage and onto the field. Goldeneye, the nickname dubbed for the girl who had captured Rodney and I, was going to be my opponent. Goldeneye viewed me like some piece of cake. She clearly was unaware that I was a trained federal agent. For some reason, the savages hadn't strip-searched me to find the gun that was on my backside in the back of goodies. They were truly dumb as hell. Let's jump into another juicy battle, folks! From the stadium floor, Charlene's voice seemed to be coming from the corners of the stadium, transcending down to Goldeneye and I. The crowd continued down from three again, and suddenly the two of us were fist-fighting. Goldeneye was good, but I was better. She'd go in for a jab, and I'd dodge her attack and slam her in the face. My anger was building due to Rodney, an emotion I had rarely experienced, an emotion I had never experienced in such a dosage. Again and again, I pounded into Goldeneye. The crowd was not exactly thrilled that I was beating one of their own, but Charlene made them remember that they were here for the sake of entertainment. 
With Goldeneye on the border of defeat, I grabbed her head in a chokehold. Bitch, you should have let us go, I whispered, the true bloodthirst making its way to the top of my existence. I knew it would have come out sometime in this subconscious, but I had not expected it to come out so early. Rodney's death had struck a chord which had never been struck before. I continued to choke her with my right hand as I used my left to open my bag. My arm flexibility was too good as I pulled out the gun. Goldeneye's corner cusp of vision saw the weapon and looked rather confused. If you had let us walk away, we wouldn't be here. With a bullet I imagined in place, I pushed Goldeneye forward before shooting her in the back of the head. Goldeneye's corpse fell out of my hands and onto the floor. The bullet had rang out into the audience, similar to how Charlene's voice had filled the audience. The stacks of standing savages were silent and unmoving as the doors opened to reveal unarmed savages who all made their way towards me. I turned to their direction with my gun. I knew I didn't have endless bullets, but I should have enough. For the technologically behind savages, my gun would most likely detour them from trying anything too bold. I aimed my gun and began firing, all in the name of Rodney's corpse and my own fleet. Eight savages fell over. My aim was perfect as usual. I ran towards the open doors as the stadium erupted into chaos. Some of the individuals were flipping out, while other savages were absolutely scared of my weapon and I. All of them were shocked. Nothing like what I had done seemed to have ever happened in the history of Tribe Stadium. I didn't know exactly how I was going to escape the basement of the stadium, although I was careful. The guards in the basement were all trying to take me down, but one by one, I managed to defeat them. I tried looking for Rodney, but I couldn't find him anywhere. He had to be dead, but there was a part of me which wondered if he had lived. Judging from the blows from Side Nut, I assumed he had not lived to tell the story. I managed to exit the stadium, which was still roaring around me. There weren't too many lingering individuals, so I grabbed the nearest RV and was relieved to find that it didn't need a key to start. I began the engine before blasting off in the direction of Fesferite Sea. If I could make it to the ocean, then I would be free. The savages didn't like the open water, so I drove the RV through the sand crests and piles and continued moving forward. Behind me, eventually came the cries and engines of savages following me. I turned around for a brief second to find Sidenut, who was painfully screaming. I wondered if he and Goldeneye had some kind of arrangement or relationship. Although I wasn't going to feel sorry because I had killed the bitch. If I had the opportunity, I'd kill Sidenut too, but I'd rather live than take his life, even though the revenge was strong within me. Finally, the RVs and jeeps of the savages were close. They tossed items and nets in order to slow me down and stop me, but nothing seemed rather effective. I continued driving wondering how I was going to make it into the ocean before they captured me, but adrenaline was with me. As my foot slammed down on the metal in an effort to drive at maximum speeds, the stadium was far gone as the ocean now appeared in the near distance. The night was once again during dark shades of purple to indicate some kind of nighttime which was approaching. The sheet of glass turned into a series of water where the finally waves became visible. I stopped the car, pulled out my gun, and shot Sarnut in the head. I suppose I would have time for revenge after all. Without looking back, I jumped into the sea, my body shifting once again, akin to the transition between Lake Ossentir and Waterfall Ossentir. This time, I ran across the ocean as it slowly curved vertically upwards. My abandoned AV became a parking lot as the rest of the savages clustered next to it. All of them had tried to use their traps and threats to try and regain me, but I was far gone into the drifting sea. 
this time, I was alone, and I continued my adventure under Clark King's subconscious. Chapter Negative 7 Water Always Calmed Me I had been running for so long that I had finally stopped and allowed myself to drift into the sea. The water built upwards before twisting into the sky. My body could feel the twists and turns, but I was not controlling the movements and neither was I feeling ill because of them. For some odd reason, I felt like a fetus in its protective yoke. The salt water was picking at my wounds and skin, but after a while, the pain calmed down. Finally, Clark King's voice appeared like some kind of god among the purple-black 360-degree sky. How did I survive the savage life of children? Well, my childhood was different from contemporary kids. In the 70s, young kids could walk home from school and spend hours unsupervised and unwatched. It was the norm, after all. School was my captive, my desert. The students were fake animals, but out in the wild, they were more likely to show their true colors. But that freedom... And lack of facade was what I desired and what I needed. That freedom was like a wash of water. Clark King vanished again, this time leaving me pissed. Why don't you just give me some real fucking answers, I barked, knowing full well Clark King's voice would only come to me to explain the small generality of a place. I looked around at the twisting ocean, which was like bended plastic. Was I supposed to believe that this place was merely about the freedom of being away from school? It seemed so fucking stupid. Between this and the death of Rodney. What was the point? Because I couldn't find it. Interestingly enough, I had always liked water. I found myself attracted to nature, most likely because it wasn't human nor wasn't animal. And when I distanced myself from living things, I found them convoluted. Granted, animals were not as manipulative as humans, but they were only removed from us by a few genes, speech, and reason. Floating in the thin strip of water was calming. In fact, the ocean's depth was only six feet. I could stand in the entire depth, but floating on my backside was more enjoyable. As my own boat and captain, lapping against the calm might of the Fesferit Sea. It was so peaceful that I could not help but remember how the school bus hit every crack and hole within the road as we dived through the countryside. Most of the schools in the area would take field trips with their youth in an effort to socialize them. Here's the firehouse. They put out fires. Here's town hall. They help people. Here's the park. Isn't it fun? I suppose there were good intentions. But I don't believe when the civic engagement had an effect on anyone. My classmates would become drug dealers, strippers, single parents, and future wedded loves on their way to divorce. Granted, it was hard to see that in the faces of five- and six-year-olds. You just want to see potential in the face of a child. The potential of which you could coddle like some kind of child who needs adoration, but adoration was misplaced in the fucked suburban neighborhood I was accustomed to. Okay, everybody, Miss William cried out as the kids silenced themselves with the aid from a few additional chaperones. So today we came out to the countryside to see Mr. Hitty's farm. Before we get there, I want to go over a few rules. Miss Wilhelm's rules were typical bullshit a teacher was obligated to say, although they knew the students probably would not obligate themselves to respect 
hands to ourselves, listening, being safe, all things that kids knew adults wanted. But these were things that kids despised. Kids desired to be real and considered these fantasies the twists and turns of adult desire. It seemed weird that adults would place these lies into the fabrication of society, although none of the students realized the errors of adults. Adults who didn't respect each other. Adults who didn't keep their hands to themselves. Adults who didn't listen, who weren't safe. Adults were the biggest hypocrites. But we were just six, and we didn't know a term existed like that. I will say, Miss Wilhelm was one of the few teachers I actually had who did try when it came to me. Most of my teachers didn't care about my normal silence and outward disdain. There were a few who hated me for it, but I always knew that they hated how easy I made uncaring seem. <laughs> In college, professors didn't care enough to see if you care, but Miss Wilhelm was one of those teachers, the kind that try and implant growth for every seed in their crop. Even with the bleak harvest, she'd always try and find something. I suppose my academic excellence status was enough for her. I was shocked years later to find that Miss Wilhelm had been going through cancer remissions with only the aid of her girlfriend. With the rules stated, we arrived at Mr. Hitty's farm soon enough. Being a farmer wouldn't be a terrible job for the future man I was going to become. I could kill livestock, do some hard work and toil so much I'd be exhausted and wouldn't have time to get in trouble. I wasn't aware yet of a job like the one I'd have as a big boy. Killing for the government was not an option to me at the time. This farm sucks, Jeremiah muttered, looking around and shaking his head with disdain. Why are we here? For six years old, some of us were already very comfortable. I want to go home. I admitted, I just don't really care. Yeah, same. Jeremiah would be one of the few figures that I could recall having some kind of impact on my early formation. He and I were like the same shade of our mental processes. The difference being that while I was unable to foster emotion and could care less about the world around me, Jeremiah wanted power. Jeremiah would get power in the form of a police officer, although he would go overboard by boosting his own drug ring to gain money, and I suppose some kind of power high. Last I heard he was dead, or maybe arrested. I couldn't remember, mainly because I don't care. Although at the time, being six and all, Jeremiah would have been my go-to guy. None of the other guys or girls understood our needs. You wouldn't hear any classmates talk about control or a lack of care. These youths seemed to care about everything, a fact which annoyed me slightly. I suppose you could say that I could feel the emotions of uncaring and anger. How are you doing, Sydney? Miss Wilhelm asked moments later as Jeremiah and I stayed close to the pack but otherwise at a distance. It was evident we were not having a good time. And so Miss Wilhelm did the thing that she does best, become your friend. I'm okay. That's all? I nodded my head. Miss Wilhelm, currently fighting cancer, mind you, grabbed my hand. Mr. Heady had been demonstrating how to milk a cow or something. My classmates loved it. Even little James would go on to be a pickpocket and Sarah would go on to work at the local strip club. If you didn't get out of this town, you were more likely going to turn wicked here. Miss Wilhelm walked me over to a small pen filled with sheep and goats. I didn't know the two animal species could live together, but I suppose animals were animals at the end of the day. A few lone chickens strode through the pen as well. One particularly came close by. Oh, look at the chicken, Miss Wilhelm smiled. I stared at the animal and felt nothing. 
The chicken studied me as well, likely trying to make sense of me through its limited capacity. At the young age of six, I wanted to believe that something would trigger inside me. I wanted to be normal. I desired it as though I was a crack addict trying to sift through the powder on the kitchen table, being so empty at such a young age, being so lifeless at the time of life was stunning to me. So I turned to Miss Wilhelm and smiled, to which she smiled back. I made her happy, even though I would never feel happiness myself. I awoke, the vivid memory fading away in my mind. I did not want to experience such thoughts, but I suppose I couldn't control the finer details of my working mind. But now, I could see Cultura City, while Blade Desert became no more than a mirage behind me. Cultura City was huge. Its entirety was a concrete jungle on top of a rock. I could see speeding cars, buses, trains, and trucks, which whittled through the labyrinth that the civilization created. Skyscrapers were everywhere. Although, I could detect some parks, museums, smaller apartments, and businesses. In the distance, to the left-hand side of the city, were three rocks coated with flickering builds. It was interesting to me how such a capital-like development lived so close to the savages of Blade Desert. The water kept the savages stuck in the desert, but what could have caused the savages to have such a fear? Perhaps their seclusion had been manipulated, or better yet, controlled by some force, such as Clark. Hopefully within the large beacons of Cultura City, I'd be able to find some answers. Someone here had to know more about Clark and about Lavender. I continued floating on top of the Fesferit Sea's surface as the waves began to kick back in. Soon enough, I watched the formation of a sandy shore right next to the skyscrapers. That beach would no doubt be my crashing site. I landed with no aplomb on the beach like a fish out of water. I was soaked through the bone and could feel myself already fading fast. The beach had a few people, even in the early dawn, or at least would appear to be done. This man needs help, a voice cried out from somewhere on the shore. I tried moving on the beach, but I just lay among the conclusion of saltwater waves. I was exhausted, dehydrated, perhaps on some level defeated. I allowed the unknown humans to help me, even though I had no choice, and succumbed to my own unconsciousness. Chapter negative eight, the haven of subconsciousness. The door opened and my mother walked in. She was adorned with the 90s mother attire of washed blue jeans and runaway flannel tied loose and overall unconstructed. How are you doing? Miss Mercer asked. Her skin was covered in a film of nastiness considering she had been cleaning the house all day. I'm good, you? That's all you ever seem to say. It's the truth. But I don't feel like you're just good, Sydney. She had nailed the head of the nail, but I wasn't going to admit that. I just shrugged, and my mother laughed as if to wash away her own awkward sentence. She entered my room, which reeked more of a guest room than that of a 12-year-old boy. How's school? It's decent. Decent. My mother repeated the word like it was the name of someone she had just met. No more than decent? I guess a little more. Gotcha. My mother nodded. She sat on my bed while I continued to do homework at my desk. Silence filled the room for a couple minutes as I did my best to focus on my reading. Finally, my mother broke the silence once again. You tell me if there was something going on, right? My mother probed. Yes. Okay. My mother shook her head and stood up. That was all the interrogation she seemed capable of performing. Dinner's gonna be in a few. Okay. She left the room and left me alone. 
For some reason, that miniature moment seemed to carry a lot of weight. My mother wanted the reaffirmation that I would go to her if something was wrong. My mother wanted a confirmation that I could express emotion even though I could not. I wonder what horrors plagued my mother. Did she believe there to be some pain behind my closed off shell? I wondered if she had gone through a lot of pain in that time frame. Most sons and daughters were explosive bombs with their personality, but I was a ticking still frame of a grandfather clock. You knew a bomb was present, but sometimes you forgot about the clock. I awoke in a comfortable bed in a beautiful pale blue walled room. This was definitely some kind of hospital between the equipment, corner wall television, and the background ambience, but for a second, I thought I was back on Earth, back in reality. But I looked out the window and saw the familiar purple nebula of the sky and the floating landscapes in the distance. I was still locked within the subconscious world of Clark King, a world that made no sense and was far away from reason, although I was dancing within pure reason, that of Clark King. My paper gown body sat up on the bed, my feet touching the cold marble floor of the hospital. I hoisted myself to a standing position and looked around. The nurses and doctors of the hospital had not noticed me while the bed next to mine was empty. My clothes were folded on the chair next to the bed as if a beacon for my next move. I took the clothes to the small bathroom next to the chair. I turned on the bathroom light and examined my face. I looked a little more hollow than I expected. My hair was still pressed down. I wondered... How long had I been unconscious, although according to the current progression of the purple blobbed atmosphere, we were pushing the evening. I changed into my clothes and then found myself in need of using the restroom. I exited the bathroom and ran right into what appeared to be a nurse in purple scrubs. <laughs> Why, hello, mister, the nurse chuckled. You already changed out of your gown as well? <laughs> it's like you're trying to fool people that you've been discharged. I'll be fine, I murmured. I just had a dizzy spell, that's all. You're right, that's pretty much what happened, the nurse explained. But I do have to make sure that you're okay leaving this hospital. Trust me, I will be. Well, let me check so I do my job and don't get fired. You're moving quickly, so I assume you're all right. Fine. I sighed, and she flashed a light in my eyes before checking a series of other checkmark medical shit. Interestingly enough, this poor nurse had no true information or ability on my body. This was not my real body, but just a vessel for this mission. So where are you from? Not the city. So where? She chuckled. They said you washed up on the shore. I'm assuming you had a run-in with the savages. I did. What's their deal? Their deal is that they're mm, subhuman. If we didn't have that long ocean between us, I'm sure we'd be at war with them. You'd be surprised how many people we see here because of injuries from battles and moments with the savages. The Blade Desert peoples live for bloody entertainment. They'd kill a kid if that meant they were entertained for the night. What a culture. Yeah, I mean, in comparison with Cultura City especially. I've never been here before. Tell me about it. Well, right now you're at the Beachside Hospital, St. Marie's, the nurse added. You washed up pretty near here, actually. They just brought you over. But Cultura City is the biggest city in the whole world. In fact, you won't find another city like this anywhere else. The skyscrapers, the large hold, the millions of people, the freedom, the lack of judgment. Well, it's perfect. I've heard of towns and villages which run more like cults. Are you from a town like that? I'm from Dahlia Village, I lied. Oh, I've actually heard really good things about Dahlia Village, the nurse smiled. They say it's really quaint. Absolutely. So what were you doing in Blade Desert? I'm on a mission of sorts. <gasps> a mission, do tell. I'm investigating Clark for research. <laughs> Clark is a story, <laughs> the nurse chuckled. <laughs> he doesn't exist. You don't believe in him? 
Of course not, the nurse shrugged. I don't think one person or one entity has the power to create all of this. Ignasco is so much more than just one identity. How do you reckon? I asked, with no intention of breaking her belief. Because then what's the point of life if it's all being dictated by a common source, the nurse suggested. If one thing controls it all, then what kind of control do you get? I suppose we have to create some kind of control, but even then, it's just limited. You're being ruled by a higher being. Cough for me, will ya? I coughed a few times as the nurse checked off one more thing on her documents. So you'd argue that I'm on a wild goose chase? No, no, I'm not that mean. But you'd never go on this mission of investigating Clark. Mm, no, I don't think I would. Well, that makes me feel secure. Don't do things for me or for anyone else, the nurse explained. Do things for you. Who knows? Maybe you're right. I probably was right considering I was in the mind of Clark King. Well, thanks for making sure I didn't get fired, the nurse added with a smile. If you're ever injured and in Cultura City, ask for Nurse Megan. I'm the only Nurse Megan on staff. Nurse Megan had discharged me and had left the room while the voice of Clark King returned once again. Megan was always the healer of the friend group. Fuck you, Clark King, for making everything have fucking meaning. I left St. Marie's, trying not to appear disheveled in the dying light of the sky, although the city was already glowing. The skyscrapers and large buildings were impressive, reminding me of the skyscrapers you'd find in the large cities of the world. I'd visited enough cities to have a good memory of the way skyscrapers looked. What was interesting about Cultura City was that it was filled with beautiful greenery and parks. Casual trees from a large meridian stood between streets while any excuse for green space occurred. I had a few of the colorful stones in my pocket, which counted as currency. So I decided to go for a drink on a bar on Park Avenue. Park Avenue seemed to be a hotspot for everything. The street was large, filled with bars, shops, businesses, lofts. Strings of lights danced with the branches in the wind as wine stems and pure pints clinked off of one another over the crescendo of laughter. The smell of fine food lingered in the air as I continued down the street. Clearly, Park Avenue was a gigameth of culture as piles upon piles of people showed up from every corner of the town. From looking at some of the city's maps, Park Avenue was quite literally the center of town. After school, I could spend hours upon hours lingering in the streets of my town. My father entrusted me at a young age to get home safely. He gave me my own key. Back then, the world seemed to be a safer place. If it wasn't safe, it appeared as such. I walk through the back roads, head to playgrounds with childhood friends, walk into town even. I'd be home before six because that's when Dad would get home. And when he got home, we'd have dinner together. <laughs> I remember a lot of nature in my town, something which sadly not every kid gets to experience today. Clark's voice trailed out, and I found myself curious to a bar called Shale. While every other place seemed almost maxed out with inhabitants, Shale seemed uh, more demure. It was quieter, with less people, less lighting, and less of a facade. Shale was the epitome of what I needed. Nighttime fell in the background as I had my first couple drinks. I found out that the different colored rocks held different currency. Apparently, golden and blue rocks were large currencies, so I didn't have to worry about running out of money for a while, it seemed. I sat at the bar with both stools next to me, empty. But... 
To the right of the empty chair to my right was a lone man. He looked somewhat unkempt with a bushy hair and beard that was deep forest brown and came off his body like a mane. His face and body was thin, but he wore a bulking series of coats and pants which seemed to act like protection. For the first two hours, neither of us spoke. I watched a baseball game on the television between the Southside Smokies and the Tyrese Tigers. I wondered where those teams were based out of. You're not from here, are you? The unkempt man chuckled. Who, me? I asked, turning to face him as he did the same. I can tell. You're watching that game way too close to call. Only a tourist or someone outside of the city acts like that. You're good with studying people, aren't you? There's not much to do in my book. And why's that? Well, I'm a homeless, unemployed man living in a big city. Some of the only things I have are the interactions with other people. So there's nothing else for you to do. Nothing else I'd rather be doing, bub. Man threw back his drink in an impressive mannerism. I'm a human, you're a human. Granted, not everything in Gignosco is a human, but I can relate to being a human more than I can relate to being a beast or some other species, so I study my own species. I think that's as far as we can go, making and casting judgments. How am I supposed to know the life of a dog when my lens are human? Perhaps you think too deep. I've always been told I think way too hard. There are bigger problems than thinking too hard. <laughs> glad to know we're on the same page. The homeless wanderer of Cultura City finished his drink and slammed the glass down. So, uh, what are you doing here, visitor? Are you people watching? Or do you have an actual job to do? I have a job to do, but I've been running around for a while like a chicken with my head cut off. Everything's been chaotic, some kind of heightened extremity. What's the job you're doing? Which is making your life difficult. I'm looking for Clark and anything related to Lavender. Rodney had advised me not telling people I was looking for Clark, but some people seemed like they could be trusted, and if not, well, I had a gun in my bag. <laughs> the old man's chuckles were weak but detectable. I haven't heard people seeing Clark in a long time. People prior to me have gone looking for him, then. Of course, boy, you're not the only one. You won't be the last, either. Everyone knows about Clark. Clark plays more importance to some than others. Some believe him to be a god of this realm. Others believe it's a fairy tale to keep the kids in line. Others believe Clark exists in the form of an energy, and kind of energy which we can visit in our dreams if we're lucky. Some think Clark is a beast or an animal among us, misaptly credited with the creation of this world. But I met a collection of men and women, all who spoke about tracking Clark down. What has happened to this collection? They failed to find Clark, or they've died trying to find him. The homeless man explained a nuance that made the event seem fulfilling and not as tragic. Instead of a martyr's funeral, the man made it seem more like a positive sacrifice. Nobody I know has ever found him. So what should I do? Well, there are so many things you can do. The homeless man chuckled. You could sit here at this bar for the rest of your days. You could go back to where you came from never consider Clark again, or you can find Clark. I want to find him. Well, one source you may try to talk with would be the king, the homeless man explained. You can get an interview, that is. The king would know the details, if there are any details. Uh, he no doubt wants you to be successful as well. Finding or meeting Clark could come with so many benefits, potentially consequences as well, but I'm past all that. I'm just a man at the bar. So you think the king might see me? Who knows? 
The homeless man smiled. You probably head out right now so that you can get an early meeting. Didn't it just turn dark? Nope. It was morning. Have a good night. I muttered, standing up from the bar. I felt the dregs of my beer hit me upon standing, as if just by sitting the conducted beer would have left me unaffected. But I turned outside to find that dawn was once again approaching. Had I spent hours in this bar, or was there just a whole different sense of time here in Gignasco? And you, have a good morning. The man chuckled as I walked out of the door of the bar. Once again, Clark King's voice struck into my head like a shark upon blood. Park Avenue continued to be active with the joy and beauty. It did mimic the freedom which Clark King enjoyed after school. And now, at the uprising dawn, I looked out to the south. There, separated from the city, would be the house of the royal family. He was a homeless man. I'd give him my lunch leftovers in exchange for a story or two. I'd stand there and listen in the alleyways, parks, and corners of the town where he'd go. I always wondered what happened to him, but by the time I reached high school, he was gone. But I'd always recall those conversations on Shale Street. If there was anything I knew about Clark King, it was that he knew how to paint a picture. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at steadfastmco. That's at steadfastmco. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...